Take your copy, please, of God's Word now and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. And this morning we'll give specific attention to the 8th verse of the 5th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We'll begin by reading, beginning in verse 2. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, we'll read through verse 12 together. Hear now the holy and inerrant word of God Almighty. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you indeed for this word. We thank you that unlike the grass which withers and dies, your word is preserved forever. It is preserved in heaven. Christ himself being the magnificence of that word. He himself is the word, the logos, the one who is the revealer of God. We praise you in his name and ask for your blessings now. Amen. You and I can relate to wanting to see certain things. Maybe you've been in a a line on the interstate or on the highway and you're poking along and you can see the lights ahead of you, the flashing lights, and there's sort of an anticipation to see the carnage that's ahead of you wanting to see. We have a name for it. It's called rubbernecking. Uh, You're one of those people that causes the delay in the traffic because you're craning your neck to see what's going on. You think about a child on Christmas morning and all the glittering lights that are there and how much you, you, of all the mornings of every day, you wake up early and there's an urgency, not for chores, but to go and to see everything that is perhaps laid out for you or not. We can relate to this anticipation. I wonder, do you anticipate Seeing God. Perhaps you are filled with dread at the thought. We remember as we think about this passage, the old covenant language that no man can see God and live. And yet here it is promised. Martin Lloyd-Jones in talking about this, this verse says, we come now to what is undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances in the whole realm of Holy Scripture. These words are so plain, aren't they? Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. It almost defies doing a word study. I wonder what these words mean. It's evident. We know what they mean. 
And so Lloyd-Jones says this is one of the greatest utterances to be found in all of Holy Scripture. I looked at this statement early in the week and I couldn't, be help, I couldn't help but be gripped by the sense of impossibility on either side of the comma. Blessed are the pure in spirit. How? They will see God? How? I know my heart. It is not pure. And you know your heart. And if you are honest, you will say also, it isn't pure. And, and God is a spirit. He doesn't have parts. How do we look at Him? How do we see Him? How do we behold Him? Well, what we learned this morning from this passage of Scripture is that those whose wicked heart has been transformed by the inward work of the Holy Spirit, have a promise. You will have eternal, uninterrupted communion with the living and true God. Those whose wicked heart has been transformed by the working of the Holy Spirit will dwell with God forever in perfect communion. Man, what a promise. Notice, first of all, that it is promised to some that they will see God. Matthew 5, 8, here is what we're looking at. The beginning really with the latter part, the other side of the comma, they shall see God. Jesus, there's no stuttering there. There's no ambiguity. It's very clear. You will see God. So on the one hand, we, we recognize, don't we, that seeing God is an impossibility. Maybe from a very early age, your parents asked you the young children's catechism and they, they asked you that question, what is God? And you can almost hear in a small voice coming back, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. In other words, when God is before a mirror, there's no reflection. No one, we are told, in fact, has ever seen God. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That is Christ. Or 1 Peter 1.8 Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. No one has ever seen God. Why is this? Well, we, we reflect on the nature of God. God is a spirit. The children's catechism is right. He does not have a body like men. You are, you are a composition. You have parts. You have fingers. Uh, the finger bone connected to the hand bone. Connected to the wrist bone. The arm bone. And so on and so forth. You are made up of different features. Eyes and ears. God doesn't have that. He's not a composition of things. Why is that important? Because there's no composer of God. There's no one to put Him together. God is most pure being in and of Himself. And so there's a sense then that you and I, there isn't anything to see. Think about Moses. 
Don't you remember in Exodus chapter 33, Moses had come down from the mountain and he found the people there worshiping the golden calf. And so he threw down the the two tables of the law and they shattered. And Moses was terrified because God said, I will not go with you into the land. And Moses fell on his face. No. No. We will go nowhere without you. And so God said to him in in Exodus 33, I will go with you into the land. And, And Moses, in a bold moment, turn over with me to Exodus 33. In a bold moment, Kind of like Abraham, if there, if there are 20, will you spare judgment? If there, are, if there are 15, in a bold moment, Moses, look at Exodus 33, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please Show me your glory. And God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And as we turn over to Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 7, we find that God took Moses up and placed him in the cleft of the rock, placing his hand over him, and allowed Moses, as it were, to behold the hind parts of God who passed before him and declared his name. Verse 6 of 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." Did Moses behold the glory of God? He did. And do you know how Moses beheld the glory of God? Friends, it wasn't by seeing. It was by knowing. Moses became acquainted. He saw God in the declaration of who God is. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger. To see God, you must understand, means to know Him. Imagine looking for a mate in a catalog. What a perversion that this happens. You swipe left or you swipe right. As though you can determine all there is to know about a person by looking at his or her appearance. We must be compatible. Nice hairline, good physique. Looking for a mate in a catalog won't do. Why? Because on the outside, everything may be pleasant. 
but on the inside is rottenness. You want a mate you share your values with. A mate who is like-minded, who's humble, serving. And God, likewise, has not made you for a relationship of visuals. He has made you to know Him. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, to know the Father and His Son whom He has sent, knowing Him. That's what He has made you for. You commune with Him by knowing Him, just as in your day-to-day relationships. You grow in knowledge with one another and hopefully grow in love. One application of this then, as kind of an aside, we worship God truly. I want you to listen to this and understand. We worship God truly not through the expression of our senses, do you understand? We worship God truly in spirit and in truth. That, that's why our worship is, our, our, our sanctuary here is not filled with, with elaborate pictures. It's not filled with incense. It's not, there are no smoke machines, no uh, elaborate lighting work up here to shine upon you, partly because it would be reflected back very brightly. But we don't have any of this. Listen, because God is not worshipped through those things. We worship Him by saying true things about Him and by growing in our knowledge of true things about Him. This is what it means to see Him. God has created you to know Him. And knowing Him is to love Him. This is what it means to see God. It is to perceive Him as He truly is. So one of the things that we immediately recognize, isn't it, is that there are, as we grow in our faith, one of the things that happens is I realize there are untrue things that I believe about God. Maybe you start out believing that the devil is equal in power to God. And that slips away. Or maybe you think that God learns things as He goes, kind of like you, and that slips away. You, learn, you think that God changes His plan or, or fixes things or reimagines things, and that slips away. You see, your whole life with the Lord is growing in knowledge of who He is and growing in love. You perceive Him as He is But Jesus said in this statement going back to Matthew 5 that this seeing of God is not available to everyone. Not all men have the promise of seeing God. It is a promise that is made. Notice back at Matthew 5, 8. It is given only to the pure in heart. What is the heart? What does it mean to be pure? Well, this purity, it can be understood in a ceremonial sense. So if you were a good Hebrew of this time and sitting there or standing, as it were, straining your ear, you're on the back row, 
uh, you're trying to listen to what the Lord says and restrain your children by the wrist, you would have understood what it meant to be clean. Because the whole ceremonial system of the Old Covenant was designed to build into the people a means by which they would become clean. If I've committed a sin against the Lord, or perhaps if I'm in a certain season of my life, or if I've got mold in my home, or if I'm afflicted by leprosy, or if I touch a dead body, I become unclean, and I have to tell people I'm unclean, and I have to be separated from the fellowship of God and the fellowship of the people. I know what it meant to be unclean, and that meant I had to come before the Lord to bring a bull or a ram or a goat or a dove, and I had to slice it open before the priest, drain out the blood. The priest had to take the blood and apply it to the altar, and all of these things had to happen, and I was thereby clean. These folks understood cleanliness. For them, cleanliness was the means for communion, you see. Without cleanliness, you cannot commune. With God or with your neighbor, you were a Gentile, an outsider, And so the sacrificial system was designed to make them clean. But what was clear to those who walked by faith was this. That this system actually had no power to cleanse. You know that. Is a bull or a ram or a goat of equal value with a man? The writer to the Hebrews addressing this whole sacrificial system in chapter 10 verse 4 reminds us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why do it? Because it was a picture of a greater blood that had the power really to clean. We, we understand then this cleanliness. This is not an external cleansing. God is not calling upon you here, or Christ is not calling upon you to go and shower frequently. We understand it in a moral sense. In other words, we, you and I, must be like God in moral purity in order to dwell with God. You understand that? Wickedness cannot dwell with Him. He cannot even look upon it. So this cleanliness, this purity, has to be inward. It's not sufficient merely to be outwardly clean. This is not merely external religiosity. I don't know about you, but I think immediately of Jesus' indictments against the Pharisees. Does does that come to mind? To look on the externals, think about this now. To look on all of the externals, they checked the boxes. They appeared to be most holy men, only to the most ignorant. But they only washed the outside of the cup. 
They were whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. Religion, in other words, for the Pharisees, was not about seeing anything. It was about being seen. As John Bunyan has so very well put it, that man that takes up religion for the world will throw away religion for the world. I think you had a Sunday school class about that this morning. Some even here will say, perhaps, I... I'm not morally pure. I try to do right. You are like the child who's been playing in mud all day and runs in to give his mother a hug. You try to do right. You see, that's not the content of Christ's condition, is it? He didn't say, blessed are all of you who do all that you can Blessed are you Mormons. We've done all our best. Your best is not good enough. Christ requires absolute, spotless purity. Where is that purity to be? Well, it isn't in the externals as I've noted. It is to be in the heart. Well, what is the heart? Some of you, you'll say to your spouse, I love you with all of my heart. The heart in Scripture is the inner man. You are your heart. Your heart is the real you. It is the part of you that nobody else in this room really knows. Even yourself, but God. Scripture identifies the heart as the real man. In other words, if you want to know a man as he truly is, you will look into his heart. The heart is the thinking and the feeling, and the willing part of you. It is your desires. You start to see how deeply Christ is going here. You have to have pure thoughts, pure desires, pure emotions. Emotions that, that are completely truthful, that never respond in sin, or have ever. Thoughts that only ever think pure things, and have ever only thought pure things. Complete purity. You think about how the outer man and the inner man are contrasted. When, when Samuel called David in from the field, remember, God said, I don't look on men like you do in 1 Samuel 16, 7. You judge men on the outward appearance. You look at how tall a man is and say, he'll make a good basketball player. That's not how I judge men, the Lord says. I look upon the heart. He knows you as you truly are. And not only does He know you, but He declares to you who you truly are. In places like Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart, this heart, from which is required complete purity, spotless blameless purity. That heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart is sick. 
This is why Jesus identified that what comes from the inner man is what defiles us. So the very simple conclusion as this promise that Jesus makes to the pure in heart does not apply to you. By nature, you will not see God. But Jesus said some will. This promise then, lastly, fourthly, is that our hearts require the transforming work, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. James Montgomery Boyce said, you can begin by trying to cleanse your own heart. But you could go away from here this morning saying, I'm committed. Preacher, I'm committed. Guess what? No football. Not watching that anymore. Not watching TV. I'm not going to take any of that into my heart. I don't want to think about that stuff. In fact, I'm packing my family up. I'm going to go move out next to Danny Ruth on Muddy Springs Road. If you want to get in, you have to know the code. Nobody's getting to me. We're not watching TV. I'm doing away with Wi-Fi. Voice goes on, you can begin to try to cleanse your heart. But whether you turn to ethics, religion, asceticism, fetishes, whatever it may be, you will find that your heart is as corrupt in the end as it was in the beginning. So a pure heart is something done to you, not something that you achieve. A pure heart is not created by you. This is why Job, in all of the debating with his friends, he said, how can a man be right with God? This is why David prayed in Psalm 51.10, Lord, create in me a clean heart. It's my only hope. If you don't do it, I am lost. It is the work of God through Christ by the Holy Spirit to make your heart pure. We call this work of the Holy Spirit effectual calling. Listen to the shorter catechism. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convicting us of our sin and misery, first three Beatitudes. Enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, the fourth Beatitude. And renewing our wills, the fifth Beatitude. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. Do you see that this promise is beginning to end the work of the triune God. It is not something you can attain to. It is not done by doing enough right things. No matter how much you give, no matter how much you attend New Covenant Presbyterian Church or evangelize, you will only end the way that you begun. So Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, the only way to have a pure heart 
is to realize that you have an impure heart. And to mourn about it. To such an extent that you do that which alone can lead to cleansing and purity. I know that this seems very impractical. Brian, what do I do with this? Well, you realize the grace of God and you praise Him for it loudly. You say, well, how how, how do I know, preacher, if my heart is pure? I, I need, I mean, this is important. I don't want to come before the judgment seat of Christ and not see God. I want this promise. Let me suggest to you that if you want that promise, if you are mourning your sin, if you are recognizing it before God, if you are listening to these things said about your heart, and you can say, yep, that's true, that's true. These are signs that God in Christ has purified your heart. But I want to know. I want to know. Friends, The knowing, the assuring, the resting part of all of that, I remind you, is also a work of God's mercy. If this this conversation this morning has led you to doubt, I, I don't know if my heart is pure. Man, I'm terrified about it. Get on your knees. Ask the Lord to assure you of your salvation. And remember that you are not saved because of the power of your faith, but because of its object, Christ. If you lack assurance, ask the Lord for assurance, and when He gives it to you, praise God. Yours is the promise that you will see Him as he really is for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we remember this morning that this purity of heart is never ours in fact, in reality in this life. We, like Paul, will in this life always be afflicted by the desires of the flesh. We will always have to fight it, even to the day that we are lying on our deathbed. And so we ask you for an assurance that even in this condition, you would speak to our hearts. Father, comfort our hearts. Show us that you are more powerful than our doubting. Help us to live in such a way that we we acknowledge our weak and sinful hearts before you and thus obtain the assurance. Be merciful to us, Father, we pray, and save us for the sake of Christ's glory in whose name we pray. Amen.